Once again, I would like to welcome you to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. It's been a while since I've been here. I've been on a kind of a short sabbatical. You all know where I've been. I've been visiting our family in England, and they're doing well. They send you greetings. My grandson is almost walking. Is a blessing. And the good news is, is that uh, they hope to be where they're going in very, sh in very short time, hopefully by March. And so keep them in your prayers. It's been some time since you've heard about the revelation of Jesus Christ being preached, about three weeks, maybe even more. I, I didn't look at the calendar. But we are now in chapter 14 of the Apocalypse. There are seven visions within this book, and we are in the middle of looking at the fourth vision. This vision is contained in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we've looked at these chapters already. We're in almost at the end of this fourth vision. The, the content of this vision is basically a combination of different types of warfare that's going to go on between the dragon and the church of Jesus Christ. And remember that each of these visions, all of them, they begin with Christ coming the first time and they end with Christ coming the second time. Or I guess to be more accurate, we could say that it begins with Christ ascending up to heaven and ends with Christ coming back. And so as we remember the last time we were in, in chapter 13, there was a presentation of the enemies of God, or shall we say, the helpers and friends of Satan. There was this image of a beast rising up out of the sea, a beast rising up out of the earth, and we saw that this was an anti-Christian government. Now, I would say governments. From generation to generation, the sea of humanity has created authorities to govern the people of this earth. And these, remember in Romans chapter 13, God has created this type of government. We are to submit to governments when they require reasonable laws that do not require us to disobey God. That is where you draw the line. We must obey God rather than man. But we are not anarchists. We are not anti-government people. However, we must also recognize that governments created by human hearts naturally create authorities that stand against God. Amen. Now, when it comes to the beast rising up out of the earth, that was a beast that elevated ideologies, false religions, false world views. And these are the philosophers of the world. These are the religious leaders of the world. These are people that want to say to the, uh, shall we say, I'm going to say noble. See, I, don't, I seldom do that, don't I? Noble human spirit. They want to elevate the fact that men have a high view of themselves and that God should be diminished. And this false prophet gives credence to the human governments. These are the helpers of the dragon. Now, the last helper are people in general, the populace of the world. 
that have worshipped the beast and even worshipped its image. It, it, it even said, well, this is the name or the number of the beast, 666, and this is what you need to know about that. It's a number of a man. The image of the beast is going to be worshipped by those who oppose Christ. And I want to remind you about this idea of an image. You know, you're going to hear from radio broadcasts or from popular books or even Hollywood movies that there's going to be a mark of the beast and you're not supposed to get it. Some type of barcode, some kind of barcode, some kind of tattoo or whatever it may be. But let me tell you about the image. Does not the law of Moses tell us that we should not have any graven image of our God? But who is the expressed image of God? Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit works with us in conjunction with the Word of God, the means of grace, taking the truth, and presses the image of Christ upon us. And that we see that there is an image of God on His people, and they are sealed with that image. And so this is a counter-image. We worship the expressed image of God, do we not? Do not be confused about the idea of what it means to worship the image of the beast. It is Satan's world. Today we're going to be looking at a part in chapter 14 that's going to have four messages in it. And remember that these messages, they're going to be throughout the generations of the time when Christ ascended to the time when he comes back. This is not just one-time events. These things are happening every day. And I want you to realize that now that we've seen the helpers of the dragon, the helpers of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all those who love and bear his image, those three will be combined together. Do you know what happens when you put those three together? When you have the governments of the world, and you have the ideologies and philosophies and false religions of the world, and you take the people who actually embrace those things, they love those things, they live for those things, you know what you have? You have a society. You have what John says is the world. The world. We're going to be looking at the idea of Babylon. Folks, Babylon is the world. So, this is the doctrine that we had been studying in this chapter. Satan has a plan to destroy the people of God, but God has an infinitely better plan to save his people. And today we'll see parts of that, where an angel comes down and proclaims the eternal gospel. The King James says, everlasting gospel. It's the same word, means the same thing. Satan has recruited these helpers, and they combine together. Where Have you ever heard the phrase that uh, the sum of the parts is greater than just them separately? What we have here is the world that seems to be unbeatable. You take the governments, you take the ideologies, you take the individual people, and when they create a world system, they seem to be even greater. And what did the scripture say? They were given power to overcome the saints. How fearful is that? But we're going to see that even though the world, in their methods, conquer us, Christ cannot be conquered 
in the hearts of men because he has already conquered our hearts. He rules in our hearts. And that we serve him in a world that seems to be a place where we cannot win. But we will win. Because Christ has overcome the world. So with this, I want you to see that God has a plan to save his people. And one of the greatest parts of that plan is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now tonight I'll be preaching again, and I'm going to be preaching on a top of the, the topic of the sufficiency of the gospel. Um, if you can't make it tonight, please go online and listen to it. I had an interesting experience coming back from England to here. I got to meet people that were Christians, that were not like us. I, I have found that I have been hedged in, and I only walk in circles of people that believe like me. And believe me, there's a lot of Christians out there that are really confused. So many people have not even the slightest understanding of the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a sad, sad thing. So, let's go on. I'll preach that tonight. I won't preach it now. The observations that I want to you know, take note today is that remember that this chapter, chapter 14, is really three basic sections. The first section I preached about when chapter, uh, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, had to do with the lamb standing on Mount Zion, standing there. Remember how I compared that lamb to the false prophet who was the lamb that rose up out of the earth? And we made those comparisons, contrasting the two. And we have surrounding the Lamb all of God's people, 144,000 people, sealed with His name, with, with, with God's name, our Lord's name on our foreheads and on our hearts. With that, we go on to the next section, the middle section, and that's going to be verses 6 through 13. And it has to do with four messages, and that's what I've entitled the sermon today, four messages. Now, technically, three of the messages are delivered by angels. The last message is delivered by a voice from heaven. And we have been given a clue in that verse that says the Spirit agrees. And so it's very likely that the last message is being delivered from the throne of God himself. So these four messages, and briefly it will be this. The first message will be an angel proclaiming the eternal gospel. The second message will be an angel declaring the defeat of Babylon. The third angel will be declaring the followers of the beast will receive God's wrath. And then the last voice from heaven will be a call for the endurance of the saints. After that, the last section of this chapter will be God's judgment upon the earth. The reaping of the wheat. The reaping of the grapes of wrath. And that will do God willing in the next message. So let's go down and make our observations verse by verse. The first message, the angel proclaiming the eternal or the everlasting gospel. And please note, as I read this, it's going to be proclaimed to those on the earth. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and, the, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, let me ask you a question before we go on here. Who is speaking here? 
Well, doesn't the speaker, the speaker's identified, right? The angel, an angel said this. But do we understand, is this like an angel like Michael? Is it an angel like Gabriel? Or is it an angel like those who were the heads of the churches in the first chapters? The stars, the pastors of the churches, those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That very well could be. It very well could be that this is the eternal gospel preached from age to age. It could be that the gospel preached right now is being alluded to by this passage. I would say this. Not only should we allow that to be entertained, I would say that that is more likely the real understanding of this passage. Now remember, when I get to a point where I don't know what happens, I'm usually going to say, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be using, I, I shouldn't say it, I'm going to say it anyhow. Weasel words are words that mean, it could be anything. <laughs> and so I'm going to say, it could be this or it could be that. I don't like calling it weasel words, but I, I do that in my, in my job at work. It's when you don't understand what someone is saying. They've said it two different ways. But let me say this. It's probably the preachers of the earth. All right? Probably. Now, I want you to notice who the gospel is being preached to. Those who dwell on the earth. Now, look at the apocalyptic vision that's going on. It starts off with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And... All of the people are there that have been saved and sealed by God. It's like they're in heaven. But then the vision switches to a different direction, to the earth, where the gospel is preached to those who are on the earth. And we have seen before where those who dwell on the earth, they have made their home on the earth. That's where they feel comfortable. That's where they have their hearts attached to. God's people are the pilgrims. They're the ones that say, our home is that heavenly city, and only God has made its foundation, not men. And so we see a gospel here being preached to those who do not have the seal of God upon them. And it's a right thing. The gospel should be preached to every creature. Every creature needs to be pleaded with. Everyone should say, you need to fear God. You need to worship God. You need to glorify God. But this particular phrase is saying, it comes in the hour of judgment. We need to keep preaching the gospel to everyone, even if they don't believe. They need to be told, fear God, keep his commandments. They need to be told, worship God, glorify him. This is what needs to be preached. Now, some have argued that this isn't even the gospel. Why? Because, well, the gospel is good news. But this seems to lack some of the good news. There is no mention here of faith in Christ and repentance from sin and salvation. It's more of a, this is your obligation. This is what you need to do. Now, trust me on this. You know, and go to the scriptures and verify it yourself. That the gospel includes our obligations to God. The gospel includes the preaching of what is sin and what is right and righteous. It includes that. But when it comes to those who have heard over and over again, they need to be told. They need to be told. They understand the truth deep down inside, but they have suppressed the truth. They have pushed it down within their own hearts. And they have, 
agreed to believe what their own imaginations have substituted for the truth. So, this particular phrase, and I've agreed with the commentaries that, that pointed this out, this idea that they should glorify God is a special phrase, a phrase that was used only several times in Scripture. One time it was used by Joshua. It was used by Joshua when he was talking about Achan. Remember that time when they took Jericho? The city was filled with wealth. Just like this world is filled with wealth. But Achan decided that he would take the raiment, the gold, the silver, everything, hide it in his tent. And when Joshua saw that God was displeased with the people, judgment was coming upon the people, he took a lot. That is, they more or less kind of rolled the dice to see who it was, and God revealed that it was Achan. And then Joshua said to Achan, Give glory to God. Do you know what he was saying? Fess up. Fess up and confess your sin. Give glory to God. And when he did, he was judged. He was judged. The next time we see this phrase in Scripture is where the Pharisees are facing a man who had been healed by Christ, a blind man. And when this man attempted to give glory to Christ, they said, give glory to God. The same way Joshua said that to Achan. They had no room to let Christ receive glory. But they wanted this man to confess that Jesus was not the Christ. There's another time that we've already seen in the book of Revelation when it comes to using this phrase. It was when the two witnesses were caught up to heaven. Remember that? And the phrase after that, the whole world gave glory to God. And you may have remembered that and you said, well, there you go. The whole world was giving glory to God. No, they confessed. They confessed before God that there is no way to deny that these are the people of God. And so, unrepented sinners, what we have here is the phrase where we can read sometimes in the, when the Apostle Paul says, the gospel of God is a savor of life to life. It is a savor of death to death. When we preach the gospel, people can like smell the aroma of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And to some, it brings life, and to others, it hardens them. It's like the sunshine melts the butter, hardens the clay. Now, I know this is a hard message. I know this is a difficult thing to hear. But it's something that we need to understand when it comes to preaching the gospel. We must preach against sin. We must preach the holiness of God. And then, only then will people see the value of God and repent and see how precious Christ is. We must preach. Let's continue. The second message, verses 14 through 8. Let me, let me just read them and, and try to cover this. Another angel, a second following, saying, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And remember what I told you about Babylon. Babylon is this world. 
It is this world. It is a society molded by ungodly governments, fueled and supported by ideologies that hate God. And all the people admire it. They create philosophies. They have their leaders of philosophers. They have their universities. They have their schools. Everything about it. They admire this type of world. They want to climb the ladder of this society. And yet, what we have here is Babylon saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. Now, this is good news for the Christian, is it not? This is the very first time Babylon is mentioned in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, this right here. But it's mentioned many times after this. Chapter 17, chapters 18, especially chapter 18. Chapter 18 is dedicated, all of it, to the fall of Babylon, to the fall of this world. What is Babylon? It is this world. Remember how John the Apostle referred to it? Love not the world. Love not the world. Remember how Christ referred to it? I have overcome the world. This philosophy, this society, this peer pressure, everything that we that are in this world. We have seen here that this Babylon is also depicted as a metaphor of being a woman, a woman. Now, being this woman who is guilty of sexual immorality, what we have here is a comparison of the very first five verses with, these, with this section right here, where we have the people of God sealed with the image of Christ, and they are described as virgins, virgins. But here we have a woman that is actually the world, and they are enticing those who should be worshiping God to worship the world. There is this picture of immorality, of sexual immorality, of sexual, I mean, of, of spiritual adultery. So I want you to understand that being involved in the world is not just an accident. It's not just a, oh, don't get a mark of the beast. Don't get that credit card. That's, a, that's the beast credit card. No one is going to go to hell by accident. People receive what they want. And people are going after the world. They not only like being seduced by the world, they go out and, and troll around for it. They go out and see if they can find the prostitute that they can commit adultery with in this world. Leaving Christ, leaving God, suppressing the knowledge of the truth, and looking for a substitute, looking for someone that they can live in sin with because their life is only in this world. It's only in this world. That's it. And what is this message? Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. Now, since this message is stated in such a way, it's past tense, isn't it? But I would, I would, all the commentaries said this, and I agree with them. There is a way of stating a truth that it is so true, it is so, it is going to happen, you can almost say it as if it already happened. I want you to use your imagination on this. 
Now, you know, I'm not a hist I'm not a historian, but you all remember a battle where the U.S. Cavalry went out and they they had, they wanted to to do some battle with Indians. You know, I'm not even going to get into the political ramifications of that, but you all know who General Custer was, right? And you've all heard of Custer's Last Stand. I want you to use your imagination and just pretend that you were able to meet General Custer and all his men the day before they went into battle. What would be across your mind right now? These men have one more day to live. You would look into the eyes of these men and say, these are dead men. These men have no hope. I'm telling you, Babylon has fallen. You look outside and you'll see a world. They're dead men. God wins. Christ wins. There is no doubt that Babylon is fallen. Now we need this information to live with courage. And, and this is what the last voice from heaven is going to get at. We need to know that our Christ reigns. We need to understand that what seems to be an insurmountable obstacle, an unbeatable foe, the dragon and all his friends, they're defeated. They're dead. Babylon has fallen. Now, it's stated twice simply because ancient languages do not have exclamation points. This is how they, they say, Babylon has fallen. They can't say it like that written down. They repeat it. Babylon, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. So let's go on to the third message. Verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or in his hand. Now before I even begin, finish reading, let me read verse number 11. And the smoke of their torment rose up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whosoever receives a mark of the name. Did you notice something? It says, these are the ones that will be judged. The worshipers of the beast. These are the ones that will be judged. The worshipers of the beast. They are, the judgment is sandwiched between these two statements. Who is going to be judged? The worshipers of the beast and the worshipers of those who worship the image. So, we'll get into what type of punishment there is later, but let's go on and get the idea and understand what it means to be a worshiper of the beast. So, what does it mean? Does it just mean that you bow down to the beast? Does it mean you bow down to some image that someone sets up? Does it mean receiving a physical mark in your hand or your, or your forehead? What is involved? I think you know what I'm going to say because I've been saying it over and over again. It involves a willing heart devotion to the things in this world. People have a desire to be involved in the world. They want to climb that ladder. They want to uh, suck the, the life out of everything. They want to fulfill that bucket list. They want to have what no one else has ever had before. They involve themselves. They are invested in this world. But I want you to understand, the more you invest yourself in the world, the more you look like it. The beast himself, 
the one who is serving the dragon has an image. And where is that image? It's your heart, man. It's your heart. You worship yourself. You worship everything. Everything that the world does is to serve themselves. And this is the problem. What we have here is a description that sounds like this. He will also drink of the wine of God's wrath. Why? Because they've been drinking from the cup provided by the prostitute. They get drunk with the wine of the prostitute. But remember how I, how I preached before when it comes to God's justice is so poetic. It's always accurate. It's like when, when the world says, I'm going to take that Christian down. I'm going to attack them. What do they do? They dig a pit. And what does the scripture say? The man who digs a pit for his neighbor, he will fall into it himself. And so when it comes to drinking of the wine from the prostitute, do you know what they do? They fill up the cup of the wrath of God. They are paying item per item. They have dug their own pit and they are filling up their own cup. We must understand this, that God is just. Some people say, well, how can God put people in hell forever? All they did was live, I mean, sin a lifetime. No. People must understand that while they are in hell, they continue to hate God. It's continuous. God is just. God is just. What does it mean to have this cup? Why? Why would John be given an image, an apocalyptic image, of a prostitute handing a cup. It is the cup of fellowship, is it not? Do not you eat meals with friends? Do not you, you have good times with each other? Bring out the food, bring out the drink, let's play games, let's do this, let's do that. But you see, when it comes to involving yourself in the world, you have actually engaged yourself in fellowship, in engaging yourself in the things that you love, the things you're trying to achieve. The furthest thing from the relationship you should have is a relationship that causes spiritual adultery. One of the ordinances of our church is that we have the Lord's table, a cup, a cup that symbolizes the blood of Christ and we fellowship with him. He gives us his own life and we drink. He gives us his own body, and we eat, and we fellowship. And he said, I won't even eat this until we sit, sit together again in heaven, but do this until I come in remembrance of me. And yet the world now has a cup, and they want to have that type of fellowship. They want to do that. They will then instead drink of the cup of God's anger. It'll be full strength undiluted. It'll be exactly as it was filled by those who commit their sin. Let me tell you something about the day of judgment. There'll be full disclosure. Nothing will be watered down. Nothing will be hidden. How many times has a criminal stood in a court and the judge passes sentence and within that criminal's mind, and I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm just making this up actually, 
but I have been a store detective. I've seen courtrooms and, and so on. And, it's, and, and I can only imagine to be like this. The criminal will say to himself, well, yeah, that's true, but I'm glad he doesn't know about this and this and this. <laughs> I'd be really sunk if he knew everything. And remember what's, what Spurgeon said one time, don't worry about what people say about you. If they knew the truth about you, they'd think a lot worse. <laughs> and so when it comes to the final judgment, there will be no dilution of justice. There'll be no watering it down. It'll come out full strength. Now let's go on to the fourth message. A voice from heaven providing truth that comforts and preserves the saints. Now, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and, the de and their deeds follow them. So, this is a very simple statement, a very simple proclamation. Who are the saints? the ones that keep the commandments of God, the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. They're easily identified. It's not, and say to those who dwell on the earth. No. These people are identified through that. There is no doubt as to whom is receiving this message. And so the voice is more than likely the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God sitting upon the throne, calling for the patience of the saints. Why does he call for that? Because this world is here to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. The world itself. The world is Babylon. And they have rejected the gospel. They do not fear him. They do not worship him. They do not glorify him. But they need to be told. Why? Because we were of such. We came from the world. They were like us. The gospel is powerful and will accomplish all that God sends it to do. They are not hopeless. God can save them. And they must be told. Now, with this, we are being told here by the Spirit. You need to know that the gospel will accomplish what it's being sent to do. The everlasting gospel. It'll do it. They must be told, the world is going to be defeated. Christ will overcome the world. And they must know that judgment is coming. They have to be told. It is happening. It is happening. So, with that, I would like to go into one practical application. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. As a matter of fact, I'm only going to read. I'm going to read a psalm to you. When we've learned from these four messages that the gospel will achieve its goal, and we know that we are going to win against the world eventually, and that justice will truly prevail in justice, in judgment, that we need to understand this in order to have the power to persevere and to endure until the end. Now, with that, I have found, I'm going to read this. I'm not even going to explain it to you. I'm going to let you make your own application. This is Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For 
I was envious or envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see where I'm going with this? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there, is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, he's saying, can't God see the injustice of the wicked being so happy and successful when we are not? But, but behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Do you see how this man is saying, it's useless being a Christian. It's useless. And they have, I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. We are being persecuted. If I had said... I will speak thus, I will have been, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now, this is where we are, folks. We have discerned the end of the wicked. There, they're happy now, but they don't have happiness. No, they don't. They have, now I'm going to put it this way, their foot shall slide in due time. It's going to happen. Babylon's fallen. Let me continue with this. Truly you set them in slippery places and make them, and make them fall to ruin. How, are they, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one wakes. Oh, Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you and hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from your spirit shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, that is what we can learn. Do not envy the wicked. Mm -hmm. They're only successful here. They may be rich. They may be powerful. But they don't have God. They don't have God. Now, in conclusion, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that you are going to attend your own funeral. All right? Now, I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but... I've been to a couple. 
And I can remember if, you know, and my memory is not very well. My wife will correct me when I'm done. But I remember that I've been to a funeral and there was a song that was sung about the one who had passed. And when I heard that song, it just, it was just awful. I felt awful when I heard this song. It, let me read the lyrics to you. You'll probably recognize it. But I want you to imagine that this is your funeral and that this song is true about you. Imagine that people said, well, we're going to bury so-and-so today, and I got the song that fits his life. I got the song that if he was here, he'd say, that's me. That's me. Listen. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll stake my case of which I'm certain. I've lived my life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the way, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall. I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed, I've cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think that I did all that, and I may say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. Mm. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the word of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. May God deliver us from such a funeral. May God deliver us from such a heart that would have its fist raised up to God at the end of his life and say, I'll not have your way, I'll have it my way. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Oh, may the gospel be released today to the world to save their souls. Now, I want to read the one that I want to be true. I want this hymn to be true for us. This is written by Isaac Watts. And listen. Now, it's going to use a word, awful, which means full of awe, not awful like, like bad. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, "'else we had still refused a taste and perished in our sin. Mm. "'Pity the nations, O Lord. "'Constrain the earth to come. "'Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Mm. 
We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. May this be true for us when we meet our Lord. Amen.